the first official nod on was inaugurated by Genghis Khan himself. And so that means each year when they celebrate Nadam, it is not only the anniversary of the first Nadam, but it's also the anniversary of the foundation of the Mongolian Empire. So, I mean, it's, it's just an amazing, amazing experience to participate in this. And Nadam opens in Ulaanbaatar. They move the war standard, the war banner of Genghis Khan from the state house to the... The, the grounds where the where Nadam takes place in, this, in, the, in the capital. And they have this big ceremony and military parade and, and all this, and, and, you know, to reminiscent of Genghis Khan, and they actually have the standard, you know, which is like a spear with, um, with castles hanging on it, and this represents, you know, Genghis Khan, and they have one that's the standard of peace and one that's the standard of war, and they move this thing out there, and they have this big ceremony. It's amazing. Now, this happens in the capital, but then simultaneously... There are Nadams happening in every uh, province and every district of the country. So, arguably, Nadam is the largest wrestling competition in the world. If, if we were to take all the Nadams together, you know, across the whole country of Mongolia. Hey, I'm Antonio Graceffo, the Brooklyn Monk, and you're listening to Eddie Goldman on No Holds Barred. Hello everyone around the world, once again this is Eddie Goldman on No Holds Barred. On this edition of the show, we once again spoke with the writer, author, professor and wrestler Antonio Graceffo. Known as the Brooklyn Monk for where he was born, he's currently located in Ulaanbaatar, the capital of Mongolia, where he teaches, writes and wrestles. Our topic in this lengthy discussion was Mongolian wrestling, including the centuries-old annual Nadam Festival, about which you heard a little in the introduction. We spoke with Antonio Graceffo by phone Saturday, August 21st. But before we get to that, a word from the sponsors of No Holds Barred. No Holds Barred is brought to you by... LennyHart.com, the home of Lenny Hart, the legendary MMA and sports announcer, voice actor, singer, actress, and comedian. Lenny is also known for her jazz vocals with her Lenny Hart Jazz Cabaret Band. For more information, to book her or to order a custom message from her, go to LennyHart.com, that's L-E-N-N-E-H-A-R-D-T dot com. And Skulls Fight Shop, home of the Skulls Double End Bag, the perfect punching bag for your combat sports training. Skulls Double End Bags provide a realistic striking target and help improve speed, distance, and timing skills. Hang it and hit it right out of the box. No pump required. Skulls Fight Shop. Advancing 
combat sports equipment for the next generation of fighters. For more information, go to Skulls, that's S-K-U-L-L-Z, fightshop.com. And Adolfina Studios, original art prints and handcrafted fine jewelry. For more information, go to Etsy.com, that's E-T-S-Y.com, slash shop, slash Adolfina Studios, that's A-D-O-L-P-H-I-N-A Studios. Also, please subscribe to the No Holds Barred page on Patreon for much more No Holds Barred content that's at Patreon.com slash Eddie Goldman. Now, you can also support our independent No Holds Barred journalism by purchasing items such as t-shirts, hoodies, tank tops, mugs, pillows, masks, and even miniskirts at the new No Holds Barred with Eddie Goldman shop on Redbubble. It has also been recommended to me that people choose sizes on the large side, as some items may run small. You can browse all the items for sale and then place an order at redbubble.com slash people slash Eddie Goldman. Hello everyone around the world. Welcome back. This is Eddie Goldman, No Holds Barred. There is a guy that we've had on the show before that was born in Brooklyn. But even though he's in the New York area right now, you may have heard of him, not for activities in New York or even the United States, but all over Asia, in China, in Cambodia, and other parts of Asia. And he's currently living in Ulaanbaatar, the capital of Mongolia. And that person, of course, is the Brooklyn monk, Antonio Graceffo. We have him on the line with us once again. And we're going to find out a lot about what's going on with Mongolian wrestling and why it is so important to the combat sports in the world, not only in Mongolia, but everywhere. And uh, once again, welcome back to No Holds Barred. Thanks a lot, Eddie. It's good to be back. Good to be back in the city of my birth as well. (laughs) Glad you could be with us. And the first thing I want to do for those that are not really up on geography is explain where Mongolia is and also the difference between Inner Mongolia and the rest of Mongolia, which is sometimes, I don't know if that's correct or not, but referred to as Outer Mongolia, so people know the difference because there's an important difference between those two parts. Sure. So I live in the independent country of Mongolia, which is a democratic republic, and it is located between Russia and China, and it only borders on Russia and China, only has two borders, it's a landlocked country, population is 3 million. Now, southern Mongolia became part of China, and that is called Inner Mongolia, Uh, you know, in China they call it Inner Mongolia, we often refer to it as Southern Mongolia, because obviously they were... You know, it's a sore spot for the Mongolians that they feel like the lower half of their country was taken. Now, the irony is that the Mongolian population of Inner Mongolia, which is in China, is 4.5 million Mongolians. 
but in outer Mongolia, we only have 3 million Mongolians. So there's actually more Mongolians in China than there are in Mongolia. So the culture then has been similar between the two areas? Yeah, the cultures are similar. Um, the language is similar. The big difference, though, is because uh, outer Mongolia, or you know, Mongolia where I lived, you know, was a satellite of the Soviet Union. Um, I don't know that they, they don't officially call it a satellite, but I think they call it like a uh, like an allied country of the Soviet Union at that time. So. You, they had heavy, heavy influence from Russia. Like, Russia built most of Ulaanbaatar. Ulaanbaatar was a very small city when, you know, a few, a few thousand, ten, tens of thousands of people, I think, when the Russians came. And then most of the infrastructure, the roads, everything was built by the Russians. The Russians created the alphabet that we use in outer Mongolia. We use the um, Cyrillic alphabet, you know, the Russian alphabet to write Mongolian. And in a way, it's, it's a shame because... Mongolia has a very beautiful ancient script, uh, ancient uh, alphabet, Mongolian uh, Hunu alphabet. But the advantage of adopting the Russian one is that we can use it on cell phones, we can use it on, on computers, it's made it a lot easier to communicate and, and be modernized. Inner Mongolia, inside of China, uh, still uses the vertical Mongolian script. So they write Mongolian with this ancient Mongolian script and um, so the, another irony is that the people in Inner Mongolia cannot read Cyrillic, and the people, most people in Outer Mongolia really can't read traditional Mongolian script. Like, they learn it in school a little bit, the kids learn it, they, I think they take an exam, but it's, you know, they really can't do anything meaningful with the script. Most people can't. So it's, that's an impediment, you know, people communicating. Now, nowadays, though, because of cell phones, they're able to call each other, and they speak the same language, and it's mutually intelligible. Um, and then there's just tons of Russian loanwords in the Outer Mongolian language, whereas in Inner Mongolia, I would assume there's just a lot of Chinese loanwords, you know, for modern concepts and things that they didn't have Mongolian words for. And then English has just, uh, in 1990, uh, right after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, Mongolia had a peaceful revolution and overnight just changed into a democracy. And within just a couple of years, they dropped Russian from the school curriculum. They added English. And today, I believe more people speak English in Mongolia today than ever spoke Russian, even at the, the height of you know their association with Russia. And uh, English words just flow into the Mongolian language. And also because you're writing with Cyrillic alphabet, so it's actually really easy to, to borrow words from English you know, and write them with the Cyrillic alphabet. So there's just so many English words. Like, it's really funny when I walk by, if you can read Cyrillic, you know, and you look at a gym, for example, like the word gym and spinning and boxing, and like all these words are essentially the English word, you know, but written written with the, the uh, Cyrillic script. Um, and in Inner Mongolia, of course, that's not the case. So I, I find it funny when I talk to Inner Mongolians because I'll say things that are totally normal, and they're like, they have no idea what I'm talking about, so we have to say it in Chinese. Now, you're living in Ulaanbaatar, the capital, the, clearly the yes. largest city. I mean, what, about 40 or 50% of the population in Mongolia lives there. Tell us about that, what what you're doing there. So, I live in, yeah, you're absolutely correct, uh, correct Eddie. Uh, so, about half the population lives in Ulaanbaatar. I live in Ulaanbaatar. 
inside Lomotar, people are divided almost in half. There's about half that live like I do, which I live in like a service department. So, you know, it's, it's a modern apartment and, and it includes, includes like, you know, cleaning service and all that. And they come in and they clean it and it's got security and whatever. It's just a nice apartment. And um, about 50% of the population live in the gear district. So a gear is the Russian word, I'm sorry, is the Mongolian word for yurt. You know, a lot of Americans would know the word yurt. That's actually a Russian word for the tent houses, traditional tent houses. Mongolians had, we call them gears. There's a gear district in, in Lombatar, and about half the population still live in gears, and about half of them live in apartments like I do. And I teach economics at the American University. And um, the insane thing is that the English level of the country is improving so fast that the incoming freshman class each year when we have the new intake of freshmen their english level is higher than the seniors that are graduating so these seniors have been through four years of, of english you know a, a medium education four years business degree taught in english all their classes in english and every single year the director makes the same assessment and he says the incoming freshmen their English is better than the seniors that are graduating. It's just amazing how quickly this is happening in Mongolia. I'm assuming there's pretty good internet access there because young people particularly will be able to watch English language videos and read English language articles from from all around the world quite easily once you're online, whereas uh, China, they'll block a lot of this, you know, most of this stuff. That's correct, yeah. There's almost no um, English language, anything on TV in China, except I think there's still some like state English lessons that are on TV. But other than that, there's basically nothing on, on TV in, in China that's in English. But in Mongolia, um, you know, we, uh, an interesting fact about Mongolia, we have more cable channels, I believe, than any other country in the world. And uh, little, little kids living in gears out in the, out in the grasslands or watching Cartoon Network because they want to, you know, because they're excited. They love it. They, they think it's great. And they sit there and watch Cartoon Network for like five or six years from the time they're born until they go to school. And they go to school, they're already speaking English. And uh, it's just crazy. You could be outside the city and meet kids that, you know, never seen a foreigner, you know, in, in person. And yet their English is it's like really good and they can talk to you. Yet still... There are a lot of traditional things that you've been involved in in Mongolia that have really existed for thousands of years, and that's where wrestling comes in. So tell us a little yeah. about that, because Mongolia is one of the places that has a circuit of, although I don't know how organized it is, we could get into that, but they have real professional wrestling in Mongolia. And real, I mean not staged like the fake wrestling uh, with the throwing chairs and all the nonsense of WWE and so forth, but a style of wrestling where people get paid to do it that is legitimate sport. Yeah, so when I when I was in China, you know, I graduated from the Shanghai University of Sport. I wrote my dissertation on wrestling and I included a small section on Mongolian wrestling because it's one of the styles that influenced Chinese wrestling also did a timeline of documentation on wrestling and the absolute oldest documentation of wrestling on the planet earth is cave drawings 
in Mongolia. And I'd known that for years, and I'd written about them for, for years in various articles and in my books and things. But I got to Mongolia, and uh, I got to meet a Mongolian anthropologist who had all the cave drawings. They do this 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 method where they put some sort of special paper on onto the cave drawings, and then they somehow cover it with ink, and it doesn't hurt, you know, the cave drawings. But I got to see, and they're enhanced that way, and you can see them much clearer. And he talked me through the whole history of Mongolian wrestling in pictures. It was it was just amazing. It'll be in my new book, but uh, but it's absolutely amazing. There are wrestling cave drawings in Mongolia that are thousands of years old. And the crazy thing is, in some of these drawings, it looks like there is a referee and there's an audience. So not only that people were wrestling, but that it was some type of a, a sport competition thousands and thousands of years ago and the other really incredible thing is that you're he, because we had all the cave drawings and then eventually they become paintings and things you know in later later eras but he had them all laid out in, in a timeline and you start to see wow this is where they added the the, the, the the briefs you know that we wear today and this is where they added the boots and this is where they added the jacket and uh all the way through, and um, and uh, I was just amazing how many thousands of years ago the wrestling actually looked pretty much like it looks today. I mean, it, it's just there's almost nothing like it. You know, Japan has documentation of sumo that goes back hundreds of years, but I mean, this is thousands of years, you know. And uh, right, so the there's, the, there's the, uh, the cave drawings in ancient Egypt that are between three and 4,000 years old of what we call today Beni Hassan um, that show yes. really a lot of the martial arts techniques, I- including wrestling, as something very organized. It's pretty, it's pretty sophisticated when you look at it. Yeah, Beni Hassan is, I mean, it's, a, it's a very interesting, and you see all the techniques laid out. You know, it's, all, it's almost like looking at a training book, you know, a textbook on how to wrestle. Um, it's really amazing, and then the the, um, the cave drawings in Mongolia are even older, and they're just—it's just—it's just insane that people were organizing wrestling events, and there was a referee. And one of the interesting things is that there's two referees usually, and you can see where that—you know—as you're laying out the timeline, you see where that came in to the timeline that suddenly there's two referees, and uh, so the the Mongolian wrestling. Uh, in, in Mongolia, they call it national wrestling, and uh, they call it Bok. Bok is actually the name for it, but uh, in English, they'll call it national wrestling. Uh, and they wear briefs, and they wear a shirt that has, the chest is completely open on the shirt, so it's really like just the sleeves. And then there's a belt going around your middle that actually ties the shirt onto your body. Uh, and you wear these sort of riding boots, right, like cowboy boots. And you're allowed to grab any of the clothing or the ropes that's on your opponent. You can grab the front, the back, inside, outside. Uh, you can grab the briefs, you can grab the shirt, the rope, everything. And um, so much of the Mongolian wrestling is depending on grabbing. Now, when I was in China, I studied Shui Zhao, and they kept saying that the Mongolians stole their wrestling because it looks a little bit like Shui Zhao. I mean, it just makes no sense. Uh, clearly, Mongolian wrestling is much older. And 
documentation I found on Shui Jiao was that the modern Shui Jiao in China is a composite of a lot of different forms of wrestling, including Kung Fu, including Mongolian, you know, because there's, there's uh, many ethnic groups within China, they're minorities, but several of them have wrestling styles, and there's Mongolian wrestling in China, there's uh, Koreans, you know, there's North Koreans, uh, uh, there's North Korean uh, uh, population in, in Mongolia, in uh, China, and they have wrestling, you know, the Shuram and um, these other stuff. So, so these all kind of combined and, and, and kind of became Shui Jiao. And also when you look at the uniform of Shui Jiao, the top looks like what the judo kimono used to look like, what the gi used to look like when Shigoro Kano was teaching in the late 19th century because it was, it was short-sleeved at that time. And the Chinese one is short-sleeved. So it looks like a composite of a lot of things. I, the Mongolian wrestling, I absolutely believe, is Mongolian, comes from Mongolia, was not, maybe, maybe there's some influence from somewhere else, but, but I don't believe for a minute that, uh, that Shui Jiao is older, and I don't seem to find any, any evidence of that, you know, so I, I really believe it's the oldest one. Yeah, finding out the oldest one, I've discussed this a lot over the years, is so difficult because the actual history is just very spotty in terms of what yes. relics and cave drawings and paintings have survived and were not destroyed for one reason or another over thousands of years. And also because wrestling is a, is a sport, is an activity that that predates organized civilization. We see it in, with animals playing with each other or fighting with each other, yes. doing doing wrestling. So where it actually became an organized sport is difficult to find because you've had these indigenous styles of wrestling in Africa for thousands and thousands of years. Well, when did they start? When did they become organized a sport? There's some, some history. But it's very difficult yes. to yeah, find. Yeah, yeah. I didn't mean. I didn't mean. I believe that Mongolian is the oldest, you know, wrestling on the planet. I just want to say that Mongolian. Every bit of evidence that I've seen suggests that it predates Shui Jiao, the Chinese Shui Jiao. That's that's what I meant to say. Right, which I think is important given the the history and the prejudices of all yep. this area. You know, this area. How do you now in the current? Uh, Bulk. Give me the correct pronunciation on it, because I'll just say. Bulk. Okay, so. B o k h. Bulk. Bulk. Okay. Yeah. So it's almost like a Germanic. Uh, the last two letters, Bulk. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Okay, similar to that. Now, what are the what are the basic rules? You know, how do you basically win in this sport? You, you win simply by throwing your opponent on the ground, and that's it. You don't have to pin them, uh, nothing like that. You just throw them down, and that's a win. Okay, what are you allowed to do and not allowed to do? Obviously, yeah, so there's no striking. No striking. However, you know, Mongolians are really big on sweeps. I mean, they call them sweeps, but, I mean, these are kicks. <laughs> These are vicious, vicious kicks with those huge Mongolian thighs, and they're wearing cowboy boots. But you're allowed to uh, to kick your opponent's feet out from under you, which is a very Mongolian technique. And one of the interesting things, as we talked a minute ago before we started the recording, 
I mentioned that there's a number of Mongolians wrestling at American universities and high schools. And all the Mongolians that I interviewed that wrestled in the U.S., first of all, all the ones that I know, that I'm aware of, they all became All-Americans. There's not that many of them that have been in the U.S. wrestling, but all of them became uh, both high school and university All-Americans. It's pretty amazing. Were they they brought in with scholarships, or did they just show up? Yes. So the, uh, the, uh, the strategy seems to be that they try and recruit them to private high schools that have good wrestling programs. So, and if you come in when you're like 15, apparently the visa and everything, it's a lot easier to arrange. And then if you graduate in American high school, it's a lot easier to go to the university. And then a lot of them do get scholarships. Like uh, my friend um, um, Banya, he had a full scholarship to George Mason. Uh, my friends Minga and Mogi, they had scholarships to St. John's, not the one in New, uh, in New York, but the one in, uh, what is it like, is it Wisconsin, I believe, St. John's? And there was one at the Citadel. I have one that's wrestling right now in North Carolina. So, yeah, a lot of them get scholarships, yeah, particularly if they go to Division One. But uh, they all told me the same thing, and, and the guys that are fighting MMA, they all told me the same thing. They said, you know, you know, go to America, I'm training, I'm learning freestyle wrestling. It's also here, it's not really freestyle, you know, you're the folk style wrestling at high school level, collegiate wrestling in college. So that's all a little bit new for them, because it's different, because overseas people just learn freestyle, like Olympic style freestyle. And then they all told me the same story, which is, you know, at some point in the match, they pull a Mongolian technique, you know, out of their back pocket, and win the match, and they're like, my opponent couldn't see the technique coming because you know they don't they don't have those techniques. So I think that's really interesting. The MMA guys do it, the freestyle wrestlers do it. Um, the uh, yeah, the Mongolian techniques. Eighty techniques in the eighty. I'm sorry. There's eighty techniques in. Uh, I think you were telling me something like there's a maximum of eight hundred techniques. There's something like like eighty eighty common techniques. In the, Something like like a max the maximum number of techniques is insane. Mongolian wrestling much more than in Shui Jiao or Judo or, or Sumo or, or I don't know in freestyle if, if anyone's ever put a number on them, but but in Sumo, Mongolian Sumo uh, officially has eighty two. Eighty, yeah. I that's what I was writing an article about it the other day. It's like eighty two, and they added something like ten or twelve because of the Mongolians. Right. We'll, we'll get into sumo because there are a lot yeah. of, particularly in the West, there are tremendous misconceptions that are just a couple of fat guys pushing each other and nothing could be further from the truth on that. But now, wrestling in Mongolia is so big that there's an annual festival, although it's because of the pandemic it's caused problems the last couple of years, but the Nadam Festival that includes wrestling and tell us a little bit about that because you not only have reported on it but you uh, competed in it although from what I read kind of briefly but it's still a dream yeah so Nadam was I'm going to go back to Genghis Khan so Genghis Khan when he was born there were just all these tribes on the steps and his goal was you know to unify the tribes and create Mongolia 
and he said unify the Mongolian tribes. Now, very few of those tribes were actually Mongolian, um, but they lived in the area that is today Mongolia and beyond. So he unified all these tribes, and he fought these wars, and, and expanded and created an empire, expanded the empire, you know, all the way to Russia, all the way to the Middle East, and all the way into China. And then when he declared the, when he established the Mongolian Empire, they had a celebration, and that was called Nadam. And this celebration was biggest, in the words of Jack Weatherford, who is one of the foremost authorities on, on uh, Genghis Khan, he said, it was the biggest event that had ever taken place on the steps. And it was hundreds of thousands of people that came to this thing. And they had the three manly sports, which are horse racing, archery, and wrestling, whereby wrestling was the highlight of the games. And that is considered the first official nod on. Now, there were probably always Nadams among the people that would become the Mongols, right? And again, you know, ethnic, you know, it's very difficult when we say the Mongols, there's the ethnic, the actual ethnic Mongols, but then there's all these other tribes that aren't really Mongols, but they're part of the empire. But anyway, all these Tartars, you know, uh, um, um, the Khitan, you know, all these different uh, Mirket, all these different tribes and races of people they all had wrestling they, they had probably had some type of nod on but the first official nod on was inaugurated by Genghis Khan himself and so that means each year when they celebrate nod on it is not only the anniversary of the first nod on but it's also the anniversary of the foundation of the Mongolian Empire so I mean it's it's just an amazing amazing experience to participate in this and Nadam opens in Ulaanbaatar they move the war standard the war banner of Genghis Khan from the state house to the 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 grounds where the where Nadam takes place in this in the in the capital and they have this big ceremony and military parade and, and all this and, and you know to reminiscent of Genghis Khan and they actually give the standard you know which is like a spear with um, with tassels hanging on it and this represents you know Genghis Khan and they have one that's the standard of peace and one that's the standard of war and they move this thing out there and they have this big ceremony it's amazing now this happens in the capital but then simultaneously there are nadams happening in every uh, province and every district of the country. So, arguably, Nadam is the largest wrestling competition in the world. If, if we were to take all the Nadams together, you know, across the whole country of Mongolia, it, it's, you know, essentially every every man, particularly outside of Ulaanbaatar, of essentially every man is born on the steps, every boy, you know, grows up wrestling. And, you know, they'll compete in this you know, their local Nadam, either at the, at the province level or at the, uh, the district level, whatever it is, and they'll compete in Nadam. And then the uh, Nadam is an elimination tournament, and um, uh, they're really big on numerology. In um, the, the ancient beliefs, Mongolia numerology plays an important role. So there has to be X number of, of wrestlers, and the reason why is because they have to do X number of eliminations. And when you get down to the final five rounds of eliminations, uh, the winners are awarded animal titles. And then the more wins you have, the higher your animal title will be. And um, 
the uh, the wrestlers wear a traditional cap, and so my cap is blank. But if you're a winner of an animal title, that title is, is, a, is a metallic medallion that goes on the front of your cap. And so when you wrestle, everybody knows that you're, you know, a champion. You're a, um, you know, you might be a provincial lion or a provincial uh, whatever, an elephant, whatever the Garuda, whatever the different. My coach was a was, was a Garuda, which is a mythical, uh, mythical sort of a bird, serpent, animal, and he's got that on his on his cap. And so everywhere we go, people know that he's a uh, he's a title holder. And um, then they'll compete in successive years to try and improve their title. And then you can have, you know at, at at the district level, which we call the SOM level, and then above the SOM is the, is, is the province, which we call the IMAC, and then eventually at the, the national NADAM. And uh, whoever wins these titles, it's a really big deal. And there's money involved, and there's there's fame, there's prestige. And of course, you get to hold the title for the rest of your life. Now, the last couple of years, because of the coronavirus, have uh, really changed it. From what I understand, this year's Nadam was canceled, and the previous years they they had to do it without the spectators. Yeah. So, 2020 Nadam. The national Nadam was done without spectators. It was done virtually. But I wrestled in a in a in a Somme, like like in a district in in a faraway province, and out there they just did normal what they would normally do. Nobody 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 had heard of wearing a mask. Nobody nobody had worn a mask for the whole pandemic. I don't know. Nobody was wearing masks. They, they were just going about their normal lives, and uh, they held a normal knot on. And so I got to wrestle in that. But in the capital, it was virtual. This year. Uh, the Nadam was completely canceled in the capital, and officially was canceled in the in the districts and in the provinces. And to my knowledge, they didn't they didn't hold. I was really surprised. I really thought the government would say it was canceled, but people would still do it. But actually, I don't think they did. And also this year, it was very difficult to move from one province to another. So that may also have prevented people from you know having having uh, the Nadam celebrations. A lot of people don't, you know. A lot of people live in the capital, but then they'll go back to their their district or their or their province, you know, for for Nadam. They go back to where they were born, you know, because their family is there. And so, because they couldn't do that, I guess that also helped discourage the Nadam celebrations. Now, in terms of videos of this and organization, tell us about this. I'm assuming this that at least some of this is televised in Mongolia, but is it televised more or any places around the world? And if people want to watch this, where do they go? And, and also, what is the the organization? Is there some kind of uh, association or federation doing this? How does this yeah, get organized? So there's, um, so as far as television goes, the events in the capital are televised. So, so not, um, Nadam is, te- you know, the Nadam wrestling uh, is televised and broadcast. Then at uh, Mongolian New Year, which is Sagansa, we have another big wrestling tournament, and that is on TV. And then there's a national championships, and that is on TV. There's actually a wrestling palace in Ulaanbaatar, and uh, they held the uh, the national championships are held there. 
whereas the um, not on the Celtics Stadium, but the Wrestling Palace is indoors and it's heated, so you know because it's cold most of the year. So I believe Saigon Star Wrestling is also held in the Palace, and I think national championships are held in the Palace. And then there's a um, uh, nigga sporting uh, sporting udon. There's like a sports center um, in Center Gulambatar, which is where all the the, the, or a lot of the national teams train in there and stuff, and they hold events there as well, and those will often be, be televised. Now, you can go on YouTube and just Google sort of, you know, to search for, for bulk wrestling or national wrestling in Mongolia. Yeah, all this stuff winds up on, on YouTube. The Mongolians are really, really good about using social media, filming things, putting it up on YouTube and on, uh, you know, uh, other social media. Now, in terms of organization, is there any federation? I'm interested in, in the governance of this. I mean, who determines, you know, who the, the referees are, the qualifications, all that, all that kind of stuff that goes on? Because it so, seems that this is huge, obviously, in Mongolia and maybe followed by M- Mongolians in other countries, but it's not well known at all outside of Mongolia or the or that part of Asia, East Asia. Yeah, so there are federations for all the different sports in Mongolia. Um, there's there's an Olympic committee, then there's federations for all the different sports. National wrestling has its own federation, separate from freestyle wrestling. Um, and you know we have we have national wrestling freestyle wrestling, sambo, and judo. We don't have Greco-Roman wrestling in Mongolia, but we have uh, national wrestling as a federation. Uh, freestyle does, sambo does, and judo does, and they're all distinct. Um, I do not know how they pick the referees exactly, but I do know that in the provinces, and probably in the whole country, they tend to be former wrestlers, probably former title holders, and I, when I came, unfortunately, I've only been to Nadam once. I've lived in the country for two years, but they only held Nadam once when I was there. And I didn't know what I was looking for when I went there, which this year I would have been a lot more in tune. But I was looking at the hats of the referees, and I would assume that most of them have animal titles on them. These are people that have, you know, they were champions when they were younger, and now they're part of the, you know, the refereeing and things like that. Um, so Nadam is celebrated also in Inner Mongolia, but in Inner Mongolia where, and, and I think maybe you've spoken to Lavelle, um, Heng Guy, he's an American from New York that's wrestling in, in Inner Mongolia. I don't know if you've spoken to him, but... Oh, yeah, good, I did. To to talk. Did, yeah. yeah, so they do it differently in Inner Mongolia. Not um, it's a season. It's like the whole summer. They have all these tournaments, like every village, and, and he's, he wrestled like 50 times. When I talked to him, I said he had wrestled 50 times already that summer. And in, in, in Outer Mongolia, you know, in the Republic of Mongolia, you only get to compete in uh, national wrestling about four times a year. And uh, in inside of Russia, there are three Mongolian republics. There's uh, the Buryat Republic, Tuva, and Altai Republic. And whereby Tubans are not actually Mongols by blood, but they are by culture. They're culturally Mongolians, but they're not by blood. Um, whereas Altai and uh, Buryat, they actually speak Mongolian dialects. 
But anyway, they celebrate not on those three republics in Russia, and they have the wrestling, and it looks identical to what to what we do in in inter, uh, in, uh, in the Republic of Mongolia. But what we do in the Republic of Mongolia looks very different than what Labelle is doing in Inner Mongolia, because in Inner Mongolia they don't have the eagle dance. Like in Outer Mongolia, we start in uh, like almost like a sumo position where you're squatting down and your hands are on your thighs, and, and um, there's certain rituals that you do, and then and then when they give the signal, you run out, you do the eagle dance, you dance around your coach or, or, or around the referee, and then you squat down. Oh, and you uh, when you do the eagle dance, you greet Kengri, the sky god, and then you you greet the dignitaries and the people that are uh, you know uh, the audience that come to watch. There's monks, you greet the monks, and then you go back to your coach and you squat down and he takes your hat off, and then you know you get ready and you wrestle. But that's that's kind of this ritual that you do with the eagle dance at the beginning of the matches in, in Mongolia. In Inner Mongolia, they do something very different. Um, and also the, 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 the uniform is different. They wear long trousers uh, in, in Inner Mongolia, and they wear a leather leather uh, shirt that looks like looks like what uh, what people in motorcycle gangs wear in the United States. They call it a cut. But it looks like what they're wearing in uh, Inner Mongolia. See, my, my concern is this, and I've seen this for a long time, there are maybe countless regional styles of wrestling that have developed as indigenous styles. And we're in an era now of more globalization. I mean, you're talking about YouTube and all the internet and all this. And they just seem to be scattered popular in one region or another, uh, such as this, Shuai uh, Jiao, um, Sumo, Sharon you mentioned, uh, there are all kinds yeah. of uh, Africans, Kushti, Kushti look, there's all these different styles of belt wrestling, you could go, all these different styles of African wrestling, there's some similarities, but slightly different rules based on the history and to me they are enormously entertaining as sports most of them yet they don't have the organization or the media behind them to make them accessible unless you're willing to you know search for years and contact people and do all this this type of stuff and the international organizations, yep. like the Olympic style of wrestling, which I find two of the most uh, unwatchable styles of wrestling in the world are freestyle and Greco, in terms of the rules that they have in Olympic wrestling. I mean, with shot clocks and, you know, st- step outs, things that are borrowed fr- from other sports Balling. that make make absolutely no, no sense. A lot of stalling, a lot of the scoring of it even when it's not there's not corruption and it's not fixed which has happened in Olympic wrestling surprise surprise even then it's just uh, you can't even figure out why you score why somebody scored who won that that type of situation these are the styles the matches are usually quick they're usually easy to understand they're visual Yet yeah. they're all scattered 
all over the place. I, I wrote an article a couple of years ago that I called a wrestling dream that said my dream would be somebody would create a festival of wrestling that would have many of these different styles, not, not freestyle and Greco, but many of these other styles, including catch wrestling and sambo, which, you know, sports sambo is, I, it's really a form of wrestling, whether they call it that or not, and put on something like this to showcase all these different styles from around the world. But I also said it's a dream, and, you know, dreams are not real. You wake up for it because wake up from it because there's nobody around who's going to do this and whenever I hear these st about these styles and watch these these different styles I get excited and try to research them a little bit but I usually run into these to these dead ends and yep. th th I know that when I used to be years ago working with Fila before they the, the Russians completely took it over and changed the name to UWW. They were trying to bring all these these uh, indigenous styles under their under their own roof, and they did not succeed in that. And it doesn't seem that the current group has, has made any headway really in doing any of that. And they're inventing, you know, a style of beach wrestling, which is kind of kind of weird, and it's kind of a ripoff of all these other styles, just doing it on a beach. And, and it's really not caught on in terms of popularity. So my feeling is that, that there has to be something done to popularize all these styles, and each one seems to be tied to one country or region or another, but there's, there's nothing bringing it together. And they don't have to be unified. That was my point. You don't have to change them any essential changes and make them just one style. They can be all these different styles and represent all these different peoples and all these different cultures and all these different histories, but you need something to showcase them. And I haven't yeah. seen any uh, with the complete, particularly in the, in the U.S., there's been numerous quite unsuccessful attempts at creating some type of real professional wrestling league. It's they're still ongoing and they're still uh, complete, pretty much complete failures. It just seems that these these regional and national sports of uh, styles of wrestling exist, but with glow as you've written about with uh, globalization and people now looking at everything in the world, they're endangered now by people turning right, their backs right. on these on these traditional styles which are going to have a real problem surviving in this world and competing with all these other sports. Yeah, 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 I totally agree with you, Eddie, and it's, it's kind of a weird thing about the Internet is that on the one hand, it makes these obscure sports accessible to people at the same time, though, the sports are getting diluted in their home countries. And as you said, I mean, it's just, I don't know why there's no Christy wrestling outside of India. You know, I don't know why. They, you know, the Mongolians hold the Nadam festivals in all the major cities of the U.S. They hold Nadam festival and they have wrestling. 
you know, in uh, you know, in L.A., Chicago, New York, there is uh, not on wrestling. You know, in July, but most I, people don't I never know about hear it. about it. Nobody con- yeah. I mean, I've been yeah, covering. Yeah, Steve, Steve actually competed in it once. <laughs> Who? I couldn't hear you. Who did? Sambo Steve. Oh, okay. Yeah, but who? Yeah, Sambo uh, Steve Cofer. But 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 I don't hear about. I have to search for yep. these things. There supposedly was some Senegalese wrestling going on. Some of the top wrestlers were actually living in New York. It's just impossible to find them unless yep. you go out like a you know a private detective or something like in the forties and yeah. you know pound the pavement and look up all these people they may use the internet very yeah, well with, in mongolia but i can usually find things without a lot of difficulty if it's on the internet and social media these things have yeah, been I next to impossible find anything to find. about the mongolian i looked on the internet i could not find anything about mongolian wrestling in in america but I knew that it existed because I knew that Sambo Steve had competed in it. And then my friend in Mongolia told me that he was working in the United States and he swept the U.S. He followed the Nadam. He, he won in L.A. And then he went with them to whatever, Chicago, and he won. And then he came to New York and he won. So, I mean, it's a Mongolian telling me that he, you know, he wrestled. They all did in Central Park, actually. Sambo Steve did it in Central Park. How long ago was this? <laughs> Steve probably told me that when I was there, when I was, remember you took me to meet Steve, and I trained with him, that, that's, I guess, five, six years ago, and that's when Selma Steve told me about it, and then my Mongolian friend probably wrestled in Nanam in the U.S. maybe two, three years ago. Yeah, well, they're not doing much of a job of getting this information out there. You know, they're keeping this stuff sort of a secret, and that's been a problem overall. There's a way to do it with social media for free. You can get on and network and follow people, and you know, it's not it's not super hard to do these days, and particularly with younger people are adept at doing this stuff. You said uh, something interesting. You said that these traditional styles are easy to understand. Now, when I was in India, I wrestled Kushti, and that was one of the points that my coach brought up. He said that because a lot of the Kushti wrestlers also do freestyle um, because there's nowhere to go with I mean, you can make money with Kushti in India. If you're really good, you can make money. There's nowhere to go. So a lot of them will try and do freestyle wrestling so they can go to the Olympics or the you know Commonwealth Games or whatever. But anyway, he was saying to me that he goes, yeah, Indian people don't like freestyle because they don't understand it. They don't understand the scoring. They watch the match. They said, what the hell happened? How did that guy win? I don't understand. They go, but you do Christian wrestling. It's pretty obvious who won. It's you know, the guy, guy who's still standing, you know, and Mongolian wrestling is the same thing. And, uh, yeah, and sumo is the, the same thing, I, too. Right. Although yeah, it's very technical. Very it's very easy yeah. to understand. That's the... The, the duality of it, it's very technical when you watch it, but it's very easy to understand who won. Yes. Yeah, yeah well, I, I, I just gave an example, the, the match in the Olympics, which I didn't watch any of this live, which is the, the big uh, showdown uh, between uh, Sotolayev of Russia and Carl Snyder of the United States, which Sotolayev won six to three 
the scoring, as I recall, the first the first point Sadalayev got because they put Snyder on the shot clock, and he didn't score after 30 seconds, so they hand a point to Sadalayev. The second point was a step out, where he steps outside of the circle, so another point. So after the first three minutes, it's 2 nothing Sadalayev. Then Sadalayev is on top and gets two tilts where he exposes the shoulders of of Snyder twice, so that's two and two more. He's up six nothing. And then finally Snyder gets a take a takedown and then uh the only takedown in the match and another point and and Sadalayev wins six three. Who wants to watch this? You know, I'm mean, I'm not saying that the pro the problem is because so many people left real wrestling for fake wrestling, it just seemed to be people who had any understanding of marketing or making this entertaining long ago left the sport, and they just seemed to be afraid to to do anything to make, you know to make it interesting, to make it watchable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's interesting. One of the, one of the ideas about the one of the theories about the traditional wrestling, why they made these simple simple rules, was also because they didn't have stadiums. They didn't and have and stadiums didn't start a sport either. It was sort of uh, coming of age rituals too. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And testing for the warriors and things like that. But as far as the rule set. The audience were standing or sitting, but they're all at the same height, right? So it's really hard to see. So if the rule was, you know, the, when the guy falls out of the circle or when the guy falls on the ground, he loses, it was very easy for people to see from far away. Whereas freestyle wrestling, unless you have a camera, you know, and a close-up, you can't really see what's going on. And so, so that, was, that was one of the reasons why traditional wrestling styles tend to be either you know, you fall down or you get thrown out of the circle. It's usually one of those two rules. Right. Since I mentioned sumo, I want to bring up something you've pointed out and other people have pointed out, is that even though the uh, Japan Sumo Association is very uh, picky and discriminatory in terms of who they let into sumo, for example, they don't let any black or African wrestlers into professional sumo in Japan, and they used to let in uh, Hawaiians, and they don't let the Hawaiians in anymore, even after the success of people like Musashi Maro uh, and uh, Akibono and Kanishiki and people like that, or the Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders. They do let a lot of Mongolians in, and the last several Yokozunas have been Mongolians, and some of the top Mongolian wrestlers have been legends. I mean, one of the current Yokozuna's Hakaho has won 45 tournaments. I don't know if anybody has is is even close. Yeah, he to holds that. the record for the most tournament wins. Right, including the most recent one that took place in, yep. in July when he's about 36 and coming back from injuries and all that. He was he was 15 and 0, and in yep. the, the last match, 
he went in uh, Taranofuji, who's also Mongolian, who had won the previous two tournaments, was 14-0 going in, and Hakaho beat him. And Taranofuji finally right. was promoted to Yokozuna after just an incredible story where he'd been in Ozeki and then he got injured and he fell out and was demoted to the lowest level. It's sort of the equivalent of you know, the, the MVP in Major League, in one of the Major League Baseball leagues and you get demoted to you know the low A ball or something like that <laughs> and then work your way back to become a World Series champion. This is a, what happened with Taron Fuji. But you've had so many most of the Yokozunas in the last recent period, including Asashoryu and and Haramofuji and and Kakaru, who just recently had to retire, are Mongolian, and they did eventually right. have to so become the, Japanese citizens, but in, they're Mongolian. Yeah, in the last twenty, I think it's since nineteen ninety eight, right? So it's a little over twenty years. There's been six Yokozuna. Five of them were Mongolian. There was only one Japanese, and he retired after two years. So five out of six were Mongolian. Right, and and they're extremely, they're extremely popular also, and people really follow yeah. them. And very different personalities of Hakaho and Taranofuji. And uh, I think that's interesting that they're going to make these guys are making a lot of money on the top level but they had to leave Mongolia to do it yep yeah so there's been a lot of speculation I did some stories for some magazines about you know is Mongolia going to be the next Dagestan you know because we got this culture where you know every single boy who's born on the steps you know not not Ulaanbaatar born they're born in the countryside they, you know, they grow up, you know, if they're growing up as herders, they're riding horses all day, they got these powerful thighs, they eat nothing but meat and milk, and then they all know how to wrestle. And the lung capacity of, of countryside Mongolians is four times that of city people. So they're like Superman when they come to the city and they wrestle. And then they're just absolutely fearless. I mean, you see Turin Fuji. This guy is at Ozeki second highest rank in sumo gets demoted all the way down to Jurio, like the second lowest it was rank lo- on it was, the bottom. It was Juridon, I think it's called. One, I forget the exact name. It was low with Jurio's number two, but it was way, way low with a lot of the, the yeah. new guys wrestling. And Japanese would have just um, resigned, you know, uh, retired, you know, because it's embarrassing. And a Mongolian was like, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just stay here and fight my way back up. And he fights his way all the way back up. And I mean, this is what the Mongolians are. They're, they're just like this. They, they are just, just fearless. I mean, I've never, I've been in so many countries where they claim, they go, oh, our ancient culture, we're warriors, this and that. And, and it's complete nonsense. I mean, in, in the behavior, you don't see the behavior in the everyday people. But I'm in Mongolia and I see it. These kids, you know, you know I, I wrestle sometimes at, at the, uh, the wrestling high school in, in Ulaanbaatar. And one of the kids was wearing a Genghis Khan T-shirt, and another kid comes over to me, and in his broken, broken English that he learned from watching Cartoon Network, he's telling me, he goes, "Genghis Khan, Mongolian superhero. <laughs> he gives us power, you know." And, and he's so funny. The kid says to me, "Who is America's superhero?" And I'm thinking, 
Well, all the superheroes are American, you know. So, it's like, yeah. oh, uh, Captain America. <laughs> yeah. Right. Nobody real. That's the point. Yeah, but they, but it's real. But it's real. It's like it's like on, on the high school team, right? One of the coaches is like 140, 100, I don't know, maybe 150 kilograms, right? Like 300 pounds. And every kid has to wrestle with him. And he'll wrestle 20, 30 minutes with one kid. And these kids, they're 14 years old, you know? Kid's 14 years old, and his coach does not cut any slack. And he's just beating the crap out of this kid, just throwing him down and tossing him and throwing him. And the kid is getting up, and he has fire in his eyes. He wants to kill this coach. And he's not quitting, and he's not crying, and he's not giving up. And he's just, like, attacking this coach. Like, he, if he could, he would kill the coach. And I'm watching this, and I'm going, this is terrifying. Like, this is, you know, this is like the Terminator in the movies, you know. He doesn't feel pain, he doesn't feel fear, and he keeps fighting. And this is a significant percentage of the Mongolian wrestlers are like this. And I'm thinking... Like, you have to kill these people, you know, to stop them. And then they're going into MMA, and they're going into judo, and they're taking this with them, and they go into sumo, and they take this with them. And so that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is that the Mongolians that succeeded in sumo were all trained in Japan, lived as Japanese, and had Japanese training on top of this Mongolian base of being Mongolian Superman, right? But it took the, the Japanese training to get them there. And the other sport where Mongolians are doing incredibly well is judo. But if you walk into, you go to like Shpokin Tovudon, you go to like the sports center in the center of Mongolia, in uh, center of Ulaanbaatar, you go to the sports center and you go to the judo team, it looks like a judo team looks in Japan because the coaches are trained in Japan. There's a Japanese coach that rotates through. I think he spends some weeks with in Mongolia and some back in Japan. So there's a heavy, heavy influence from Japanese training. And it's like you're taking that structured, regimented, disciplined Japanese training and you're fitting it to these Mongolians that grew up on the steps, riding horses, wrestling, you know, and all this. And it works. With MMA, uh, it seems to be a lot more chaotic what's going on in, in Ulaanbaatar. They don't, the ones that went to America, like this is a funny one. I'm at the wrestling high school one day. A guy walks in, he's wrestling in, um, I forgot where he's fighting, like Bellas or something in the States. And uh, he just came back from the States to visit Mongolia. He trains with the, the high school team when he's there. And he, and, he, and he meets me, talks to me in English, you know, you know, his English isn't great, but he talks to me in English, and he says, oh, would you mind sparring with me, because there's nobody here that knows how to do, you know, MMA sparring, I said, sure, no worries, and he said, wait here, I have to go put in my groin guard and my mouthpiece, and I was cracking up, I'm like, there's nobody in Mongolia who's using a groin guard and a mouthpiece, you know, but the MMA guys, they went to America, they learned that, they brought it back with them, when he comes back, he's holding a round timer, and he goes, yeah, we'll do three minutes on, one minute off. <laughs> he sets the time, and I'm cracking up. I'm like, this is like training with an American, you know, but it's a Mongolian that was training in, I think, Las Vegas or something. But that's the part that's missing in Mongolia. They don't have that that structure, you know, and, and they have it in judo because of the Japanese, and they have it in sumo, of course, because of the Japanese. So I think, because a lot of people ask me, are they going to dominate 
you know, MMA. I said, look, I really hope they will. And they have a lot of raw talent, a lot of benefits, but they're going to need the structured training, you know, to make it all the way. Because you're going, you know, you're going into a sport where there are submissions and you don't really have that in Mongolian wrestling, and you're going into a sport with a lot of uh, bad striking. You know, two guys just standing yep. in front of each other winging punches like a bar fight or something, which to me is... is and you're also doing it in a, in a cage, which has become more than a uh, a stupid prop, which is why it was originally Yeah, I mean, there's cage techniques. It's one of the main things. You know, yeah. when I'm teaching over there, a lot of times I'm teaching them how to use the cage, because they don't know. And that, that's a whole, a whole set of techniques. And that that, cheap, that cheapens it, because the original pull of MMA, it's supposed to be reality fighting. Well, now right. you got a, a cage, and you don't have to get a work for a clean takedown or a throw. You push somebody to the cage. You know, yeah. maybe you tumble to the ground. Yeah. To me, it's just, I, I don't want to get too much into it, but uh, no, it's, it's, yeah, it's no, devolved. No, MMA is completely devolved. For me, um, it'd be better. It would be better in a ring. I would improve some of that, but the whole thing is basically devolved. If I want to watch wrestling, I'll watch wrestling. If I want to watch striking, I'll watch boxing or kickboxing or something like that. But to me, it's become the lowest common denominator of all these sports, rather than the highest quote ultimate level. I don't, right, I don't right, see that right. anymore. So I, I don't know what they're going to do because you get, like you said, they're going to have to have people trained for years in in these different these different techniques. But uh, that's where globalization comes in. Could this be a situation? Because yeah. you not only have UFC, which to me is the the, the most vulgar of, of the major promotions. You know, but you have one championship based out of Singapore. You have all these different organizations. You mentioned Bellator. Could you have a situation where all these different styles get lost in the shuffle? Yeah, well, I mean, look, you know, Joe, Joe Rogan said this, and, 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 I, and I believe it too. I mean, I think that martial arts styles will eventually kind of disappear because of MMA. You know, you're already in a point that you got kids sitting at home watching MMA fights, and then their dad or mom or whatever takes them to like a taekwondo gym, and they're like, oh, but there's no, you know, punching, there's no takedowns, like, you know, this isn't even fighting, you know, and and the other crazy thing is all the other sports are trying to compete with MMA by adding, this is ridiculous, there's like a karate thing now where they do karate, but you're allowed to do takedowns and ground fighting, but you can't right. punch in the face Right, karate combat, you can uh, do five seconds of punching on the ground, right. Yep. Yeah. I mean, there's a thing in Malaysia where it's like, see a lot, but they're trying to do it like MMA, but doing limited rules, and, you know, it's, it's, it's really a shame. It's like everything's just going to become one, one, you may, know, just, maybe, just one martial art. Maybe, but boxing is still bigger and just as, if not more, yeah. universal than all of this. And uh, and we were discussing before we started recording stuff we've been over a million times, the absurd uh, 
you know, uh, fragmentation of the organization in boxing, the lack of unified, well-known champions and all that type of stuff. But people still like the sport of boxing and all these different styles of wrestling that are out there. You have Lamb in Senegal is one of the most popular sports. Uh, many There are many countries like Iran where it's the, the most or one of the most popular sports. This is the world's oldest sport, and it's developed in virtually every culture, in every era of civilization, and before we even had organized civilization. I don't see it going away. I see it having its, all these things having its its ups and downs, and it's, I'm not saying we can easily predict the futures, but I don't see it going away because of MMA. There's still an awful lot well, of people I, that prefer wrestling to, to MMA. Knowing what MMA is, they want to see wrestling. Yeah, I think that um, without a doubt, uh, Mongolian wrestling is, is here to stay for a very, very, very long time. It's not, I mean, it, it, it's probably going to diminish a little bit because of, you know, globalization. The kids born in the city are less likely to wrestle, but, uh, but it's so huge, right? And then Kushti in India, my coach told me he estimated there's 20 million wrestlers in India. <laughs> it's more than the population of some country, you know. Um, so that's here to stay. And uh, But in other places, like in the Central Asian republics, I think that the, the belt wrestling is, is definitely dying out. When I lived in Busan, Choi Hongman had just, moved to MMA because, you know, he was a professional Shiram wrestler and professional Shiram was basically ending. You know, it used to be that each Saibatsu, each of those big, you know, um, um, uh, what do you call them, big business conglomerates, um, Samsung or whatever, like they each owned a baseball team, they each owned right. a Shiram team. You know, Soft and bank they, and they, Yeah. And then Shiram was kind of disappearing, like professional Shiram was pretty much dying, which is a shame, but I think that a lot of, in a lot of countries, the traditional wrestling is going to die. In Cambodia, there's effectively one village that still does traditional wrestling. It's huge in that village, but it's almost non-existent in the rest of the country. Um, so, I mean, Mongolia and, and India, it's going to survive, but, um, but unfortunately, in the other countries, I see it dying. Well, a real professional wrestling died in the United States a century ago when yep. the, the promoters wanted to be able to control the belt, you know, and uh, they, they made it fixed. So that then you could determine who has the belt, and if you want to trade the belt between different promoters, you can agree to do that and hope there's not a double cross. And if there is, you had ways of dealing with that. All this kind of nonsense coming from a, a corrupt structure. And so within a few years, it went from these very long matches that took place. And you could still see a highlights of uh, a scratchy film from 1920, Madison Square Garden, the Joe Stecker Earl Caddick heavyweight championship match, and see the style of wrestling when it was still a real professional sport. Till just a few years later, they doing flying drop kicks and, you know, bizarre costumes and all this, you know, nonsense that uh, got to, would just get worse and worse every year. 
and it couldn't compete it, it, because of the corruption. And it's interesting, I once wrote an article about this, how in the right around 1920, there was boxing, wrestling, and baseball were all, all faced crises, and they all took three different directions. Baseball had the 1919 Black Sox scandal where it was the World Series was fixed, and they put in a commissioner, and they weren't always consistent with it, but they clamped down on fixing the games and have had a, a pretty good run afterwards, although in recent years it's had a, another series of problems. Boxing got legalized, but under the current structure of the different promoters and later their rival sanctioning bodies, and wrestling solved its crisis of losing popularity by coming fake and abandoning the real sport right. just to the Olympic and amateur level, which have never really gotten much popularity. And so yep. it's possible yep, that this true. fate <clears throat> this fate can await a number of these indigenous and national and regional styles unless they modernize their marketing and media and fast. Yeah. You know, you know, it's interesting because when I was in India, a lot of a lot of the wrestlers asked me about, you know, Mongolians and could I bring Mongolians to India or you know, they're really interested in you know wrestling with the Mongolians and um, which I thought was neat because in China they didn't have that like the guys it, like the Shuijiao team at the university trained in the same room at the same time as the judo team and there was never even one day that the two coaches said, why don't we have our guys wrestle each other? You know, like, it's like so weird. They, they, they had no interest in doing that. And they, none of them wanted to like wrestle the Mongolians. None of them want, you know, but the Mongolians, uh, I mean, the Indians were really interested in wrestling the Mongolians. And my coach is always asking me, can you bring some Mongolians with you when you come back to India? You know, so I mean, you know, there is interest in some of these countries to do this, but then where did the money come from? I don't, I don't know that there's any, Sponsor in India that wants to sponsor, you know, Mongolia versus India, you know, in Kushti rules. Well, that's where supposedly the World Combat Games was supposed to deal with that a little bit. Um, although it was not just wrestling, it would, it was for the combat sports, both Olympic and non-Olympic, and they held two editions of it in 2010 and 2013, and then you had the. Uh, intra-Olympic politics and rivalry derailed the whole thing and it was supposed to come back and it kept getting postponed and then the pandemic came and that added more postponements to it so now supposedly it's going to take place in 2023 in Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia wants to uh, showcase itself as this modern wonderful place so they're willing to, to pay for it and that will have many of these different styles, but only those that have international federations. They don't have to be Olympic sports, but they have to have international federations that are affiliated with the International Olympic Committee. So the International uh, Sumo Federation, for example, is not an Olympic sport. They didn't even have sumo at the, the Tokyo Olympics that just took place. But it's it's part of that whole international structure so you can have 
you, you can have sumo there. You can have sumo at the World Games, which are in Birmingham, Alabama, next July, along with a lot of these other sports, a lot of the, the non-Olympic sports. So there are places to showcase it, but unless if you just have your own separate federation that's not connected to anybody, um, you know, you're going to stay that way. And with globalization, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're gonna, you're gonna, it's gonna be very difficult, very difficult to survive. And as you said, they, look at all these different organizations that are out there for, in Mongolia with the book with Shuai Jiao in China, with Kushti that you mentioned with Lamb in Senegal, with other traditional styles in Africa, and on the belt wrestling, the many different styles of that and and on and on and on and on they really need they could maintain their own styles but they need to have some umbrella to promote them all and nobody wants to do that because everybody wants to do either do their own thing or they're just clueless about this and that's not a recipe for these things which have been around for thousands and thousands of years lasting in the modern world, or just they could become so marginalized. Uh, Kirkpanar, the, the Turkish oil wrestling, is also, I think, one of the oldest tournaments that have taken place. There are all these different regional styles, and nobody's pulling them all together. I, I feel like I'm doing right, like right. A, fu- a funeral watch when I discuss wrestling. Yeah, no, no, I totally agree with you. Yeah, like, you know, I was curious about. Um, so I'd read that there, there were originally different styles of Mongolian wrestling. Lavelle told me they still practice about three kinds in Inner Mongolia. Uh, in, in Mongolia, we don't. It's really just Mongolian wrestling. I heard a rumor there's one place where they still teach one of the other styles, but uh, the Nadams are all the same national wrestling. Across the Central Asian republics, they all had belt wrestling, but I think they were all slightly different. You know, today I don't know if they're all slightly different or, or you know, if there's even many people practicing. I mean, it's just such a shame to see these things go away. Like Georgia, I, I would assume Georgia has Georgian wrestling. I, I, I've never seen it, but it, but I would imagine that that's a thing. But I wonder how many people are doing it and, you know, is that going to survive? Well, you had catch wrestling as an example. And uh, over the last 20-something years, I've seen all attempts to revive it have failed and they hold some very tiny uh, tournaments somewhere because nobody wants to work together everybody knows this is the correct way this is the right way to do it you know and nobody works together because they think of them the problem is when the clubs are making these decisions you don't have an overall body that they're all part of it goes nowhere and that's the difference yeah. with sumo, is that because as weak as it is, you have an international sumo federation, you have a U.S. sumo federation. So you have different clubs all across the United States that are doing, and some people are doing their their own thing, holding their own tournaments and all of that, which is fine. And it's been growing because of that. And they will all get together for oh, the, yeah, talking, you know. Yeah, talking about the sumo, about the Mongolians and sumo, you know, the, the, there's a rule in Japan that each stable can only have one foreign wrestler. 
Yeah. When, yeah, when Akibono and those guys went over, there actually was no rule. When they first opened it up to foreigners, there was no rule. And, and he said that at that time, there were even multiple foreigners in one stable. Well, today, you can only have one, one foreigner per stable. And um, in the 90s, they held two selections. I believe twice they did this. The, the Japanese representatives went to Mongolia. They taught a wrestling clinic. And they asked all the wrestling coaches in the country to send you know, their best 14, 15, 16-year-old boys. And then they taught a sumo clinic for a few days, and they had a competition, and they picked, I believe, five or six Mongolians to go to Mongolia the first time, to go to Japan the first time. And they were the first Mongolians to go to Japan in the 90s. And then I think a year later, they may have done a second round of intake, and then that was it. And then they never did the intake in Mongolia anymore. And then all the other Mongolians, as far as I know, that went to Japan, it went, some of them went actually through the Judo Federation, but they all wound up going through direct relationship between a coach in Mongolia that had a connection in Japan. And I know that um, yeah, several of them were on Judo teams in Mongolia, and they got the opportunity to go to Japan to go to the, like uh, a Judo high school in Japan, and then somehow from there wound up on the sumo team, and then they wound up staying in, in uh, Japan as, as uh, sumo wrestlers. Um, but, uh, but that's how they got there. And I forgot the number of Mongolians that are in Japan wrestling right now. I just wrote it in an article. I want to say it's like 40, which is pretty amazing because there's only, I believe, 60 stables. So that means that, you know, most, I, I, I think, uh, definitely Mongolians are the largest percentage of the foreign wrestlers. Because Eastern European wrestlers, there's, um, there's a Brazilian guy that's reasonably high-ranked. Yeah. A few others. In the in the Makuchi uh, division, there's like one Bulgarian, one guy from the Republic of Georgia, one Brazilian, yeah. you know. There's, and then there's a couple of like mixed. There's like a Filipino, Japanese. I don't mean Filipino, Japanese, or Filipino, Korean. There's a Korean, yeah. Japanese. Yeah. But they but, they, uh, particular, the they don't care. See, the thing is, Japan Sumo Association doesn't care what happens outside of Japan. So even though there are English language broadcasts on TV and you could watch free on the internet, they don't do really much to promote it. It's just sort of like people who are Japanophiles will watch this and follow this. And people who don't want to get into all of that don't follow it and and it, it looks too Japanese for them, and it is hard to yep. follow with the rituals and the, the, even the English language announcers. They use a lot of the Japanese phrases. Sometimes they'll explain it. Sometimes they won't. But it, it's sort of, they're not interested in it becoming an international popular sport. So yeah, that's that's where, where yeah, that's. Yeah, I know. I know there was an attempt. You probably know about this better than me. There's a documentary film that was made when they tried to bring professional sumo to the United States, and they were going to do it in Las Vegas, and they spent. So I was I was at the uh, I was at the the World Sumo Challenge in 2005. Was it Madison Square Garden? I covered that event. Um, okay. And to give you an example of how they got 8,000 people at the garden. <laughs> 
the fans really liked it. You could I don't know how many people were were papered in, but the people the you can't get people to cheer. You could bring them in, but you can't get them to like it. The people really liked the event. So to give in one example of something that was really obvious, the tournament, there were a number of Europeans who were top amateurs like Scheibler of Germany and some other guys who were favored to win. And they didn't win. The winner was a 20-year-old Japanese college student named Fukao. And so after the event is over, um, I made way, my way down to backstage and I say, I want to interview Fakao. And they go, oh, he left. What do you mean he left? You're not having a, a post-event press conference or bringing him in for media interviews? This guy just won your event, your inaugural event. Well, he left. He had to go. There's this kind wow. of stupidity. And Fakao went back. To, and a year later, they had events. And I asked them, whatever happened to Fakao? Oh, he went back to Japan and went back to college. Well, that's right. That's what happened. And he continued sumo and eventually got into professional sumo. He was then known as uh, Akasiyama. And he had a sort of mediocre career. A couple of years ago, he made it up to the top division and then fell back down. And then last year, he made it back up. He had one or two winning tournaments. But now he's about... 35, 36, he's older, I think he has vision troubles and all of this, and so he's knocked back down to, to Jurio. People really like the guy. And the level that won at the World Sumo Challenge was a 20-year-old college student beat all these guys who were amateur, <laughs> who were amateur sumo champions. And then the next year, they decided they were going to have a world tour, and they started off and they didn't have any TV deal, and they didn't know how to use the internet. This is 2006, so the tour got uh, abandoned halfway through, which I've talked about a lot, and that was the end of the World Sumo League. And yeah, there were all these attempts. They said, we're going to bring it back, and every few years I would get a press release, so I would speak to somebody. Oh yeah, it's coming back in Vegas, this, that, and the other, and uh, it never came back. So that's yeah. where we are now. Yeah, two thousand. Yeah, I don't know what, I don't know what the answer is, but I think the Americans would enjoy watching Mongolian wrestling. I think the Christy wrestling is awesome. Um, you know, Shiram. I mean, Shiram's cool, man. You know, like I think people would enjoy watching it. And as you said, it's visually easy to understand. You know, it's visually interesting. It's easy to understand. There's not a lot of rules. There's not a lot of you know referees and scoring. And uh, I think people would enjoy it. Well, that's something we've talked about for a long time, and I'm not getting any younger. And I haven't seen too many people willing or able to take this kind of project up. So the warning is out there. Unless something is done, these styles are all endangered species. Unless you get together and work together and create some kind of organization... There's the old, uh, there's the old Don King line of, you don't get what you deserve, you get what you negotiate. You know, right, and, right, right, and right. As cynical yeah, as well, it is, you know, it's often you know, true. If anybody's listening and wants to do this, right, 
I know I can get Indian Christian wrestlers and I can get Mongolians to go anywhere in the world and wrestle. You know, luckily, it's not like uh, judo or uh, like Cambodian martial art where they have to have the permission of the federation to go abroad, you know, and compete or, or, or you know, where there's restrictions on what they can do. So Mongolians as individuals would be allowed to go anywhere in the world and do Mongolian wrestling. So it would just be a matter of somebody giving an invitation and, you know, paying for their travel and that. And same thing for the Kushti guys. Um, I know, like, Cambodia, we, we had such a hard time that, like, the Federation, particularly the Judo Federation has all kinds of rules, and the, the MMA Federation, and they wouldn't let the athlete out of the country, and, let the, you know, and China's kind of like that. But, yeah, but, but for Mongolian wrestling, Kushti wrestling, you know, if you wanted 10 guys, I'll bring you 10 guys, you know, but somebody's got to... You know, it's got to be money. It's got to be, I guess, a TV deal, whatever sponsors. Yeah, the TV. But I would is, love to do that. The TV is key for all these kind of sports, and uh, and of course, streaming is part of the whole video plan for all of this. So uh, I'm not sure of the direction for it. It's just finding somebody that has the vision, because the problem is that because these sports have been marginalized so much, there aren't a lot of people who know sports media and management, who have any appreciation of this. And even if some of these people, like, say, in America, wrestled in high school or college or something, they got out of those as fast as they could because those things right, are right. going nowhere right. and they would, would, you know, would do would do something else. So it's finding the, the right place and the right combination. Uh, maybe India which I haven't explored the Indian wrestling scene enough. I did uh, a little bit when they tried when they had this uh, Indian uh, professional wrestling league that they had, but that was the, the problem. That was directly tied to UWW in freestyle, so that limited its popularity, right. even though they brought in some top wrestlers from around the world. So I don't know. Someone Someone has to move on it. Maybe I'll... Maybe somebody who is not yet born will deal with this. But time is running out. We saw, like I said, with catch wrestling, the era of Frank Gotch and all that filling up the earlier versions of Madison Square Garden with real professional wrestling. That's that's gone. That's history. And nobody's been able to even yep. come close to replicating it. These other styles can be uh, just as endangered, too which I hope they're not, and I hope that one day catch wrestling is able to be revived as well because it's an exciting style also. But that was my back to my wrestling dream. <laughs> so, uh, Well, okay, so hopefully you and me, our, our mission, we're, we're getting old, so our mission now is we can bring the word out to the people. Hopefully somebody's out there that's going to make this happen. Well, maybe we could use this to hash out some kind of proposal and find somebody that's that's willing to do it, that understands it. And then, of course, you're getting in, you know, involved in world politics and sleazy actors coming forward and all this kind of stuff. But but yep. uh, let's do it. Now, how how long uh, are you in the states? Uh, just a few more days. I'm going down to Tennessee this week because 
it's the 50th anniversary of the martial arts school where I grew up as a kid. It's my 40th anniversary, and the school is having a 50th anniversary. So I'm going down for that, and that's pretty exciting for me. Cool. And then when do you go back uh, to Mongolia? The following week. So I'll go back uh, a week from Monday. I go back to Mongolia. And are you you posting other than these articles? If people want to follow you online, I know you're using Twitter. And as I said, from what I understand, there is not censorship of social media in Mongolia as there is, for example, in China and some other countries. Yeah, yeah, there's no censorship. So yeah, I I don't I yeah I I have Twitter, you know, I have Facebook, I have YouTube, whatever. Um, and my articles are appearing in, in all different magazines right now. Um, I've had my column in Black Belt Magazine. I've, I've been writing for them for like 20 years. My column has been running over 10 years. And then uh, I'm writing for a lot of other media, South China Morning Post, The Diplomat, Penthouse, uh, The Epoch Times, and yeah, a lot of different media. Yeah, Penthouse used to, in the U.S., used to cover this. I think it's all, uh, are they, these like independent penthouses now or or just different editions? That's a good question because I'm actually on contract with the one in, in Australia and I don't know if that's the world headquarters or just its own thing. I'm not sure, but the level of journalism is really high. I mean, it's, it's very good, very, very good writing and um, yeah, I did political, you know, they, they wanted some things on, the, on the, uh, the military coup in Burma. I did a piece on that. I did a piece on Repression of Mongolian culture in China, and I did a piece. It's my favorite one. I sent it to you. It's uh, Mongolia, the last refuge of the real man. It's just about how you know in the West, uh, you know, toxic masculinity, this and that. They're trying to make our boys into girls, but in Mongolia, you know, men are still men. You know. <laughs> By the way, I forgot this. Do, do women in Mongolia participate in wrestling? Because I know in other styles of yeah. wrestling. Women cannot do Mongolian wrestling. Uh, national wrestling is only for men, and the shirt that they wear is open-chested, so women cannot wrestle in that. However, Mongolian women are doing very well in freestyle and doing exceptionally well in judo. And all the women that are doing well in judo and, and freestyle, they all say things like, you know, I grew up with my brothers, I watched my brothers wrestle, I wish I could do it, and now I got my shot. And uh, President Batulga, our uh, former president in Mongolia, he was uh, uh, a judo champion, sambo champion, and wrestling champion, and he was a big supporter of women's wrestling and women's judo. So uh, the women are doing super well in that. MMA, too, now. The, um, some, of the, some of the women in Mongolia are doing really well in MMA. So, uh, yeah, they, um, you know, they have the fighting spirit, too. Right, and I think that's another thing against it. traditional national wrestling in Mongolia. They don't have a women's division that's going to hold them back, too, because virtually everything else on an international scale uh, have uh, women's divisions. Yeah, true. You know, boxing, yeah, wrestling, to judo, to, taekwondo. You know, that's like saying if, if you did sumo, but you took out the pageantry, you know, or if you did Mongolian wrestling and you took out the, the eagle dance, but then it's not, it's not Mongolian wrestling at that point, or it's not sumo at that, you know, so that, that's been one of the issues, like, with trying to 
you to create amateur sumo and, and boys and girls both in sumo or, or in Mongolia. Amateur like, sumo like has a both. Thing. It's a amateur sumo has, uh, for, since it was set up, uh, both uh, men's and women's uh, yeah. tournaments and world exactly. championships. They often, in a country like the U.S., where there, there are a number of sumo clubs that not a ton of people in them, the, the men and the women were often training with each other anyway. But uh, right, you, that's right. That's you right. see a lot of prominent women emerging uh, in in sumo in the United States, and it's going to be very interesting. Assuming the World Games go off next year without any uh, any problems, I don't. Th- I think this pandemic is not over at all. But if they take place in, in Birmingham, Alabama next year in the U.S. in uh, July which will include sumo on the program, it's going to have men's and women's sumo. And being it'll be yeah. in the U.S., it'll get a relatively high profile, and everybody with their cell phone cameras and all this, uh, I think it'll. there are some women that people really want to see in sumo, and I think it'll Yeah, draw that's more kind of what happened with MMA, with everything, you know, that when women saw it in various countries, women said, they went, wow, you know, I, I want to do that, and it's open to women, you know. That, that was one of the advantages Japan had was that judo had always been open to women, but in much of the world, women were not wrestling. So Japan had an advantage in judo. In 2004, when wrestling started for women in the Olympics, a lot of countries didn't have wrestling for women. Um, so it was like all the world's women were starting kind of at the same level, and it was really interesting because rich countries or countries with a history of wrestling didn't necessarily have that much of an advantage over other countries. So it was, it was very interesting because it was, it was more equal in a way than, than like men's wrestling. Yeah, it's, it, and, and it still is in Japan where the women are just tremendous wrestlers come out of Japan generation after generation. So we got a, I don't know, did we kind of have a task in front of us, and maybe we ought to think about a step of finding somebody who understands this and wants to move forward and really do something for these different styles of wrestling. And uh, Yeah, I would love, man, I, I, you got me excited. I'm thinking about an event where you have Christian wrestlers, Mongolian wrestlers, and then maybe they wrestle each other as well, you know, that would be like a really cool highlight of the games, you know <laughs> draw out of a hat, or, you know, it's the Mongolian and, and the Indian guys are going to wrestle each other is it going to be Christy rules or Mongolian rules like that would be a cool thing too and it but, seems uh, that, that there may be more interest in Asia than elsewhere for this and I don't know, the like I said we'll I'm going to have to start investigating Christy wrestling a lot more, and also the media scene in India, uh, second largest population in the world, uh, to find out more about this and figure a way. And uh, I tried to make some contacts, as I said, a couple of years ago, but uh, they really didn't go too far in terms of uh, following the profession, the real pro wrestling there. Right. So, right. so we got a lot said. If people want to follow your follow you online uh, give us your twitter and the best ways to do so that I'm, I'm brooklyn monk so if you just google antonio Grisefo, brooklyn monk you get you'll find everything you'll find the twitter you'll find the youtube 
And uh, and like I said, uh, you know, mostly it's I, I write for a lot of magazines, a lot of newspapers around the world. So if you just kind of Google my name and you can put the word, you know, Mongolian wrestling or Kushti or you know whatever you're looking for, and, and you'll find the stories I've written about those. And then uh, I'm wrapping up a book right now for a publisher. They wanted a book about what my experience was like living inside the Chinese Sports University for three years, and um, so that's going to be going to the publisher shortly. And then next summer, I'll have the book coming out about uh, Mongolian wrestling because uh, I'm doing doing a dissertation in Mongolia right now as well on Mongolian wrestling. And it'll be more informative. Tonight, I was kind of stumbling over some of my facts. <laughs> in my book, it'll be a, a bit clearer. <laughs> yeah, well, also when you do a podcast, you know, you just want to lay out some of the basics and use it for intelligent people to do more research on their own. Take the spoken word yep. to the written word. So we have that. Yep. Well, listen, I think we, we covered an awful lot. Uh, I don't know if there's anything else you just want to add before we wrap this up. No, I'm just thinking about dinner right now. So. <laughs> <laughs> me, me too, also. We're doing this on a Saturday evening. Well, listen, thanks a lot for uh, taking all the time to do this and uh, we sort of set out a task that's been talked about for a long time and hopefully it could go from uh, from a dream to reality in some way so uh, I hope so. keep watching these developments and things like the uh, what's happened, the ups and downs of the world combat games and navigating the absurd uh, politics of the Olympic movement and dealing with all that other crap till we get this figured out and uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon and uh, maybe you know how the connections to speak with you uh, when you're in Mongolia do you have Skype there and all that yeah yeah we have everything we have Skype and Zoom and yeah no restrictions Mongolia alright after we're off send me your Skype uh, I don't know if I have your Skype name okay so we'll do that. Well, listen, thanks so much for talking with us. And uh, we got a lot laid out. And if somebody's hearing this that we don't know, give us some hints on uh, how we can move this forward before it's too late. All right. Thanks a lot, Eddie. Take care. Have a good night. Take care of yourself. Thank you. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. No Holds Barred is brought to you by... LennyHart.com, the home of Lenny Hart, the legendary MMA and sports announcer, voice actor, singer, actress, and comedian. Lenny is also known for her jazz vocals with her Lenny Hart Jazz Cabaret Band. For more information, to book her or to order a custom message from her, go to LennyHart.com, that's L-E-N-N-E-H-A-R-D-T dot com. And Skulls Fight Shop, home of the Skulls Double End Bag, the perfect punching bag for your combat sports training. Skulls Double End Bags provide a realistic striking target and help improve speed, distance, and timing skills. Hang it and hit it right out of the box. No pump required. Skulls Fight Shop. Advancing combat sports equipment for the next 
generation of fighters. For more information, go to Skulls, that's S-K-U-L-L-Z, fightshop.com. And Adolfina Studios, original art prints and handcrafted fine jewelry. For more information, go to Etsy.com, that's E-T-S-Y dot com, slash shop, slash Adolfina Studios, that's A-D-O-L-P-H-I-N-A Studios. Also, please subscribe to the No Holds Barred page on Patreon for much more No Holds Barred content, that's at Patreon.com, slash Eddie Goldman. Now, you can also support our independent, no-holds-barred journalism by purchasing items such as t-shirts, hoodies, tank tops, mugs, pillows, masks, and even mini-skirts at the new No-Holds-Barred with Eddie Goldman shop on Red Bubble. It has also been recommended to me that people choose sizes on the large side, as some items may run small. You can browse all the items for sale and then place an order at redbubble.com slash people slash Eddie Goldman. Hello everyone around the world. Welcome back. This is Eddie Goldman, No Holds Barred. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of the show. Thanks for listening. If you want to follow my site, my blog, the easiest way is go to eddiegoldman.com. For No Holds Barred, This has been Eddie Goldman.